Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. I grew up in, uh, in Brooklyn my whole life, and uh, I uh, remember a friend of mine uh, told me how to break dance and took me to events, and so I started to get into hip-hop and, and rapping a lot, and so this is really uncomfortable for me to have this thing on the side of my face. I'm used to holding a microphone and doing all this stuff, so this is very uh, new, so bear with me. Um, my name is Josh Cepeda. I'm a member here at Hope Brooklyn. If this is your first time with us, we have a saying here at Hope that no matter where you are in your Christian journey, there's always room at the table, and we believe that, and so feel welcome if this is your first time. Um, I'm happy you're here. I'd love to meet you. Uh, for those new faces that I haven't met as well, I'd love to meet you too. Um, due to some uh, work conflict schedules, I've been in and out for the last several months. But by God's grace, you know, uh, work has worked itself out. That's a cool way of saying that. And uh, now, you know, where uh, me and my family are present once again in community, I'm so excited to be here. Uh, would you pray with me this morning? God, we thank you. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you that you're here in this place, that you meet with us, that you speak to us. I know I have nothing good in and of myself to say. I know that I haven't studied as much as I should have, haven't prayed as hard as I should have, read as long as I should have. But I'm grateful that in my weakness you're made strong. I'm grateful that you're always speaking, even if we're not always listening. So, Father, I thank you that your story is being told at all times, in every moment, in everything. Father, help us to catch a glimpse of that story today. Help us to see your story in ours. I pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. And so, if you've been with us for some time now, uh, you know we're neck deep in a sermon series entitled The Paradigm in which we're going through the book of Exodus, reading that story and taking note of a pattern, of a model, a paradigm that's being exposed through that narrative, which is giving us a glimpse of this greater pattern and and model that's present in all of scripture. We've identified this for the last few months as the the meta-narrative, the grand story. And what we mean by that is that there's a grand story, a story that's above all the stories. It's the story that every story is talking about. It's the story that every story is referencing. And incidentally, it's the story that all of us are longing to hear. It's a story that we all want to believe is present. And it actually is. And so this morning, we're taking a break, I guess you could say, from that. Even though I don't like calling it a break because... uh, I think uh, here in uh, New York City, especially, a break implies like, I don't want to know anything about this anymore. You know, like, shut down. I don't want to talk about this. But in the the Christian worldview, rest or this break or this period of of kind of rest is different than the way we would think about rest. You know, we're first introduced to this idea of rest through the creation narrative, this story of a God who creates the world and he makes these things that are beautiful, they're good, and he doesn't rest because he's tired or weary or tired of dealing with this. He rests because he wants to enjoy this. And then he creates people to 
enjoy this rest with him. And it's not until the fall of man when, when men disobey and, and, and fall short that we find this period of restlessness, this, this actual labor. It's like even though there was things to do in the beginning, it wasn't this laborious task. It was this constant rest. And so then begins the journey in Scripture of, of, of longing for rest. And so the biblical narrative of rest is one where we enjoy all that has been given to us, that's, been, that's present before us. We take a moment to, to breathe it in. This morning as we were praying, uh, the staff and getting ready for today, um, I, 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 believe it was, uh, I believe it was Lucy, she, uh, she said in her prayer, you know, she thanked God for the rain. And I found it so interesting because the scriptures talk about how God sends rain and, and, and these, like, the weather to change to kind of stop us, to kind of cause us to rest, to pause and to reflect and to consider all that God has done and is doing and that our lives are presently held, you know, in his hands. It's, it's rest in the biblical sense is very, it's, it's very different than what we know. And that's kind of where I want us to be now. I'm not going to pick up the paradigm series where it was left off. I want us to stop and enjoy the view. Last week, Nathan uh, preached, and if you haven't heard his sermon, it's, it's a great, I enjoyed it so much. It was a great sermon, and I want us to, to pause right where he left off. He began talking about the, the meta-narrative, the grand story, the paradigm in Scripture, that this isn't just a story like every other story. This story that we as Christians have, have uh, gravitated to, that we as Christians have, have called our own, is a true story. That's where I want us to pause and, and, and reflect this morning. I can't help but think about uh, a conversation that... Um, that I'd heard that C.S. Lewis, who's the writer of the, the Chronicles of Narnia, and, and J.R.R. Tolkien, the writer of uh, The Lord of the Rings, had. I say that out loud, and it sounds like I'm going to tell a joke, you know, like, you know, <laughs> like of the variety of, like, you know, Jesus and this guy walking to a bar. It's like, it's, it seems very, because like, these are two big names, but they actually were really real friends in real life, and they were actually professors at the same university, and... Um, yeah, it's just cool to know that these guys actually knew each other. It's just insane. But they had a conversation early on in their friendship. C.S. Lewis, Lewis at the time was an uh, unapologetic atheist, you know, and uh, Tolkien was a, a, a devout and practicing Catholic. And so they're talking about their favorite uh, subject, which is story. These men loved stories. As you can tell, they were storytellers. The, the books that they wrote, incredible stories. And so they're dialoguing about stories. And they're dialoguing about what C.S. Lewis felt was the lie of the myth. That myths, fiction, though wonderful and fantastical, don't tell us the truth about the world. They kind of give us an escape. They don't hold us accountable to what we know about the world. But Tolkien held the opposite view. That myths are actually giving us more truth than the world is presenting to us. For Tolkien, myths help us to see that life exists outside of this material and, and you know, uh, physical world that we can only sense and know through, through our five senses. It, uh, in, in Tolkien's words, it took us out of the prison. It gave us a glimpse of life outside. And in their conversation, Tolkien, you know, addresses his, his faith in Christianity and how Christianity is like every other story they've ever heard. But he makes this quantitative statement. He says, this one is true. This is the true myth. And Nathan touched on that uh, last week. He ended with that, that this story for us is true. And I want to talk a little bit about how we 
see that story maybe in, in our own life. Because it's not just true because it's better than all the other stories. You know, it's not just true because it's, it's, a, it's a greater story. It's true because how it affects and how it speaks to the lives of those who hear it. It's true because of the characters it talks about. It's true because of the narrative and the themes it's revealing to, to us. Like I said before, the grand story isn't just the story every story is pointing to. It's, a story every, it's every story that we've been longing to hear. It's the one we can't help but feel is out there and we want to be true. And so this morning, I want to do that by actually looking at a passage of Scripture that, for me, was truer than true. It's coincidentally, it's an exodus. I, uh, I grew up as a child. I mean, uh, uh, Nathan mentioned this in his sermon last, last week about the Prince of Egypt, the movie, when it came out. You know, and I remember uh, my church going to see this in theaters. And I remember just being in awe of this movie. You know, it's amazing how visual net media, like, has the potential to kind of show you what your imagination can do. You know, like, as a kid, you know, you have this vivid imagination, but sometimes when you see other people put their imagination to work, it's like, oh my gosh, I never thought of all that. And so that's how I felt. You know, I was five or six years old, and I, I was in awe of this story that I remember sitting in the pews at church, and whenever I felt, like, disconnected from the sermon or service around me, I would, I would open the pew Bible, and I would read the story of the Exodus. I mean, I would only read up to the Red Sea, you know, because that's where the movie ends, so no more visuals after that. But I would read that, and, and I would always stop at this one passage, and it would, and I just was in, in awe of it. And so I would like to read that with you today. I would like to kind of share a little bit about my story of how, you know, where, I, where I've come from or where I've been at the last few years in my journey in the Christian faith. And, um, and I want to do that through reading a story that has been with me since I was a child. And so just some background, we're going to be reading from Exodus chapter 4. And um, this is right in the middle of the, uh, the, the encounter at the, at the burning bush. Uh, Moses, our, I guess, protagonist in the story, is in exile. He's been living in the wilderness for 40 years. He's an old man at this point. And uh, he's in exile because he's killed an Egyptian taskmaster who was uh, taking advantage of a Hebrew slave. You see, Moses was himself a Hebrew. He was born in a time when the Hebrews were no longer invited or welcome in Egypt. They were enslaved and, and taken advantage of. And the king of Egypt at the time took this out on the, uh, the infant uh, men, the infant boys that were being born. As the Jewish population began to grow, he feared them. And so Moses' mother, fearing God more than the king of Pharaoh, hid her son Moses. This led to him being found by, Moses, uh, by Pharaoh's daughter, being raised in the home of the man who wanted to kill him. Nathan said that last week, and I never thought of that, that he was raised in the home of a man who wanted to kill him. It's insane. And, um, but he grows up self-aware, very aware of himself and what's going on around him. And it manifests itself when he sees this Egyptian taskmaster taking advantage of a Hebrew slave. And Moses, in his, in his anger, kills that Egyptian and hides him in the sand. And uh, days after, Moses sees two Egyptians quarreling, they're fighting, and he tries to be their mediator, step in, their, in, in between them and mediate their relationship, remind them of who they are and how they, they shouldn't be fighting. And, and it gets revealed that it's no secret, Moses, you've killed this man. Is this, is this what you're going to do to 
people who don't, you know, uh, act the way you, you know, you, you like. And so Moses, for fear of his life, for now he's, uh, he's a wanted man, leaves. And so he's in exile, he's in the wilderness. There he, uh, he meets a man, uh, Jethro, he marries Jethro's daughter, and now he's a shepherd, and he's been doing this for 40 years. And so here we are in that narrative where Moses is, 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 taking, is leading his sheep by the mountain of God, as the, the scripture tells us in, in chapter 3. And he sees this bush, this shrub, as Nathan called it. I like that shrub. Um, the shrub that's on fire, and it's not burning up. And he's intrigued. He goes, and there he encounters the living God, the, the God of his, his family, the God of his ancestors, speaks to him, reveals to him that he's been present this whole time. He sees what's going on. He's heard their cries, and he has this plan, this plan to deliver his people. And he's going to use Moses and send Moses back. He's going to speak to the elders, speak to Pharaoh. He's going to deliver his people. And uh, here we are in chapter 4. And this is Moses' response to this divine and, and amazing experience, this divine plan. And so uh, we're going to read verses 1 through uh, 17. So starting from verse 1, this is, Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put out your hand, inside, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside. So he did. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, that they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know he can speak well. Behold, he's coming to meet you. And when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. And I will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the, to the people. And he shall be your mouth. And, he shall be as God, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your, staff, in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. I read this passage, um, I can't even tell you how many times as a kid. I was always in awe of that conversation. And I was in awe at the time primarily because for me, I had never seen or acknowledged this kind of dialogue that Moses has with the living God. I mean, the way I was raised in the Christian context 
was kind of God speaks, you just do it. You know, there's, there is no dialogue here. You know, you either respond right or you're not right, you know. And, and as a child, it was so intriguing to see this happen over and over and over again, to see that Moses speaks with God. And so I just, I, I remember just being in awe of, of verses 11 and 12. This amazing statement that God says, when he says, who makes man's mouth? You know, who makes him blind or deaf? And then he tells him, go and I'll teach you what to say. That just always uh, shocked me. Like that, that this, is, this God is so involved in this scenario with Moses. He cares enough, you know, about him. And so I grew up reading this text. But unfortunately, I didn't see that meta-narrative at the time. I didn't see what God was communicating through this story. All I could see was what my, the context, the, the Christian context I was raised in, my life at the time, what it wanted me to see. You know, I, want, I felt powerless. I felt weak. I felt, you know, uh, I lacked faith. And so I looked at this passage like, this is what this needs to do. It needs to embolden me. It needs to give me power. It needs to show me that I'm, I'm important. You know, that's what this, this story is about. And the reason that is is because Christianity for me at the time was very limited in its view. And I'll explain it like this. When I first met Nathan and Russell, I told him this story that it was the best analogy I could give. That at the time, my Christianity for me was, I described it to him as me standing in front of a, a painting. Except I was only about a couple inches away from it. And so all I could see was right in front of me. My peripheral could see a little bit. And so my Christianity was spent looking at this piece and trying to discern meaning, trying to find value, trying to understand it. Not just looking at the painting, looking how it was painted, looking at the brush strokes, looking at everything. And I, I created, you know, story and context behind it all. And for the first time, I'd step back and realize that this painting wasn't just some painting on a wall. It was this grand work of art, this floor-to-ceiling masterpiece. And so not only had I failed to look at the bigger picture, but I had misunderstood this piece in the context of the whole. For me, Christianity was defined by this limited view I had of I need to think highly of myself. You know, the, God wants me to think greatly of myself. You know, I have to respond in immediate faith to him. You know, it has to be, you know, uh, either he speaks and I just do it. You know, and I have to be, I can't have any doubts that was my Christian context. But as I stepped back, I realized that the story of Scripture wasn't speaking to that at all. And neither is this here. And so what I want to do is I want to look at three things this morning that I missed as a, as a child and as a young man and even as an adult with children. First, I missed the God who reveals himself. That the main, one of the paradigms you see in scripture is a God who's frequently introducing himself. A God who, you know, doesn't need an introduction. You know, we say that often, you know, to, you know, when we introduce someone, they need no introduction. God really needs no introduction. But he introduces himself frequently, often. He desires to reveal himself. The second thing is a God who calls. That God is constantly inviting individuals into his plans. He's telling them what he wants to do. He's actually listening to their, their responses, and he's actually working them into this plan. It's not a cut and dry, this is what we're going to do, and it's over. 
you know, you either, you know, jump on board or you get off, you know, you just, or you get out the way, you know. I mean, I've actually heard that stuff kind of said, you know, you either get on, you know, get on with God or get out the way. Um, but no, it's not like that at all. God is actually trying to get us on. He's calling us. He's inviting us. The last thing is, is uh, a God who is compassionate, that he is slow to anger and full of mercy. In the Christian context I was raised in, you know, a lot of my responses to God was in fear of how, what he would think of me if I didn't respond rightly. And so those three things I want to look at in this text because I missed them completely as a child. So the first one, God, the God who reveals himself, the God who's introducing himself. If you look at uh, verse 5, after he after God gives Moses the first uh, sign where he drops the staff and turns into a serpent, he tells him that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. This phrase is not, this isn't the first time God has said this. In fact, he said this multiple times, and the first time he says this is in chapter 3 when he introduces himself to Moses. And along with this phrase, God gives himself a name because Moses is, is actually you know, he's, he's asking real questions, like how are people going to know that you've spoken to me? How are they going to know? I mean, he's asking, I think, more poignant questions than we ourselves would ask when we go out and do things for the Lord. Like, how, is, how are they going to know? How are they going to believe? And God gives him this, this, uh, this name for himself. He actually gives himself a name, incredibly. A God who doesn't need a name gives himself one. And then he uses this phrase often because he wants the people to know who he is. He wants the people to know, this is who I am. He wants them to to understand who he is. He introduces himself as this God. They'll be familiar with this name. In fact, he says it in chapter 3. They'll know you. They'll know it's me when you say this. He's constantly introducing himself. And he's doing that here. He wants people to know him. The second thing, the the God who calls. I mean, you see it at the uh, shortly after. When he says, if they, uh, was it uh, verse 8? When he says, if they don't believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, that they may believe the latter sign. If they not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, that they may take some water. And he goes into this dialogue of the last sign he wants to give him. But it's this God who calls. I want them to listen to your voice. I want them to know that this is, me and you are in this story together. You know, he's not just looking at Moses as just a piece in this, like just one of many. He's actually, he wants people to hear his voice. He wants Moses to be a part of it. In fact, you even see that frequently as, as Moses tells him multiple times, don't send me. I'm not the guy. I can't do it. God frequently continues to call him. And that leads into the last thing that this is a God of compassion. Something I completely missed, and I'm, and I'm tempted. I want to I ch- see if it's there, because I know that a lot of this section in the, the movie The Prince of Egypt is, is pretty much, is, is, it's pretty there. It's all there, like word for word. But I'm wondering if it has this part or if it shows it, because I never looked at this. In fact, as I was preparing for this sermon, it, it, it jolted me. Verse 14, it starts off with saying, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, that you know, God speaks this, this incredible statement. In fact, verses 11 and 12, I actually were the, probably the first verses I memorized as a child. The first verses I think I prayed. I was so in awe of that statement. I thought, man, if God said that to me, I'd just get up and do whatever he asked. You know, but Moses doesn't do that. In fact, after God tells him, I'll teach you what to say, I'll be with you, Moses says, 
no. <laughs> he says, please, send someone else. It's not the response that I, was, I always thought you had to have with God. You need to have that response with God. You have to respond to him, right? Moses doesn't. Moses is more sincere, more honest, more human than I was admitting to being. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against him. God is actually upset with this answer. God is actually, you know, infuriated, I guess, with, with Moses' lack of faith, with his disobedience, with his blatant just, I, I'm not doing this, you know. But what God does confuses you even more. Because rather than just being angry with Moses and, and, and kind of moving on or, or setting it aside, he creates a means from by which Moses can still be in this plan with him. He tells him, your brother's coming. He says, he'll speak for you. I'll be with both of you. I'll be there. You'll talk to him. I'll talk to you. This is how it's going to work. As a child, I always missed that. I always miss the fact that God, yes, he may have been frustrated or, or upset or angry with our lack of faith or disobedience, but he is slow to anger. He's rich in mercy. He is compelled to bring us in. And you see this often in scripture. I mean, when I read this as I was preparing, I thought about the, the creation narrative when the fall of man, when men fall and, and God now, you know, curses men. He curses the man, curses the woman, curses the servant. He kicks them out of the garden. But in the midst of that, you see a moment of, of, of grace and compassion. You hear in, 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 the, in the curse, there's a promise that one day that, you know, your, your seed will crush the serpent. This war will be over. He clothes them, for they were naked. There's this glimpse of compassion. This God who, despite being angry, is full of compassion and love for his people. And it's present here. But I missed it. And I think I missed it because of something that uh, a quote that Nathan shared uh, last week from Madeline Engel, uh, where she talks about story. I want to read that quote this morning. This is what she says. She says, all life is story, story unraveling and revealing meaning. Despite our inability to control circumstances, we're given the gift of being free to respond to them in our own way, creatively or destructively. What our free will is meant to do is to help God to write the story. What I neglected to realize is that my life was telling a story and that God was writing himself into that story. That in all of my life, that all the things I was encountering, my circumstances, God was present writing a story along with me. I was unaware that we were co-authoring this story. He was there. And this is what makes this myth of Christianity, this true myth, a true story. That when we sit back and when we reflect, when we take a rest, a biblical rest, and we don't just say, I don't want to deal with anything. When we sit back and just in awe of all that has happened, all that is going on, and we look at his story, and we reflect on our story, we begin to see where the two intertwine. There's an artist, uh, his name is Propaganda, he's a, he's a rap and spoken word artist, and he has a, a, an album called The Crimson Chord. And I love the concept of the album because he constantly references in that album that if you were to look back on your life, in fact, he has a, a great like, uh, interlude where he thanks people in his life. I mean, it's, it's insane when he goes back and he remembers everybody, he thanks everyone, and, and he thanks everyone for, even people who like, did him wrong, quote to say, 
both creatively and destructively, like Madeline Eingel says, he goes back and he looks at all the decisions, all the relationships, and he begins to thank every single one because when he looks back, he sees a crimson cord that in the tapestry of his life, there was this thread that was being woven in. And if he follows that thread, it takes him all the way back to God. What's amazing to me, and, and Tolkien says this at the end of his conversation with Lewis, is that the true myth is rooted in a true person. He says, because we know Jesus existed, he says, because we know the people around Jesus existed, like Pilate and Herod, this myth become, comes into our world and becomes a true, a true myth. It's no longer an abstract idea. It's entered into the human story. And just like that crimson cord, when we look back at our story, we see God has been entering in. All the three things I mentioned about God in this text, Christ embodies. Christ is the God who introduces himself. He reveals himself. Frequently you see this. He sits with the Samaritan woman and he reveals himself as the Christ. You know, he sits with many. He sits with, with people and he begins to speak. And those who hear, know. He, in fact, he even uses at times that phrase that God gives here in Exodus for his own name, this I am that I am. God, Jesus uses that phrase. He says at one point to the religious leaders before Abraham was, I am, he tells them. You know, when they come to arrest him and they ask, are you Jesus? He says, I am. And says they fall to their feet. He uses this phrase. Jesus is revealing himself. He's the God who introduces himself. He's also the God who calls. You see, often he's constantly inviting people into this relationship. You can't, you know, when you hear his words to Peter, it's, it's incredible. He says, come and I'll make you fishers of men. He invites Peter into this relation. He invites many into this. He's constantly calling people to come, come. And he's also the God who's compassionate and full of mercy. This is the story that's so well known is, is they're sitting in this boat. It's a storm raging. And everyone's afraid for their life. In fact, they wake Jesus up and say, you know, you got to wake up because we're going to die. You know, and, and Jesus responds. He rebukes them. He says, you have little faith, he tells them. How long am I going to be with you? He rebukes them. And then he calms the storm. And he continues to his, his relationship with them. Later on, towards the end, you know, he has this dialogue with Peter where Peter says, you know, nothing's going to happen to you. I won't allow. And he tells him, get behind me, Satan. And later on, he says, you know, I prayed for you. Satan would have you, but I prayed for you that you would not get sifted. He goes, and then when you, when you return, because he knew Peter would reject him and deny him, when you return, he says, encourage your brothers, he tells him. This is a God who is consistently longing for relationship. And he will do anything at his own expense for us to be in relationship with him. It's like Liz said uh, during worship. Here's a God who's capable of coming off of this cross. It's, it's not that he he's, has no power. It's not that he can't. It's that he loves us. That's the story he's telling. That every story is about. It's a God who wants, seeks, and loves that's the story he's constantly telling. And so this morning, I want to encourage you this week to take time to rest. Look at your story. Think about all that's ha been happening, maybe in the past, maybe recently, and things that are happening now. Consider what we've been talking about, this grand story that God is echoing in everything that we do, in every story we read, and see if you can find that crimson cord. See, if you can see God's story in your story. 
I read something years ago that was hard to read. It offended me greatly. Uh, it, was, um, it was a lecture I heard on the, on the Gospel Coalition. I don't know if it was one of their conferences or what, but a woman named Paige Brown, she made this statement. She says, the Bible goes out of its way to let us know how important we are, how much we matter, but that we are not the point. It's just, it was offended me. I was upset at this because at the time I, I missed it. I missed that there's a greater story that's happening. It's one of which that I'm included in. I'm so valuable, but it's about him. So I encourage you this week, take time to rest. Take time to look at your story. Consider what's been going on and consider his story. And see if you can see his story in, in yours. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you. I thank you that you have been writing your story along with us, that unknowingly in our lives, both in the good and bad decisions, you've been writing your story. You've been speaking of yourself. Help us, oh God. Help us to see the God who reveals himself. Help us to look at our story and see that you've been speaking, you've been revealing. Help us to see the God who calls. When we look at our life, have you been calling us? Have you been making ways for us to be in relationship? Have you been inviting us into your service, into your work, into your love? Help us, help us to see the God of compassion, the God who is slow to anger, full of mercy, who despite our brokenness, our weakness, our inabilities, makes a way. Help us to see your story in ours. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.